from the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. I stood between them. They were beautifully dressed. She was in her white wedding gown with a veil. Her smile lit up the sanctuary. Her eyes twinkled as she looked longingly, lovingly, deeply into the eyes of her groom. He was handsome, put together, shiny shoes, pocket square, coiffed hair. And he looked longingly, lovingly into her eyes as well. I had just completed the vows that I lead people into saying, very traditional and meaningful vows, and I told the congregation that it was now the opportunity for the bride and groom to write and share the vows they've written for one another. Now, in most cases, when people say they want to write vows, they really don't. What they end up writing is some sort of affirmation of feeling and commitment. But I let them do it if they want. So the groom goes first. And Typically speaking, the grooms are less well-spoken and poetic than the brides. This was no different, but it still touched me. He started this way, baby. From there, I thought a pop song was about to fall out of his lips. Baby, you're my world. It didn't get much better from there. But then he said, you're my constant. And my heart kind of pepped up at that moment. You're my constant. That was as poetic as it got, but as poetic as it needed to be. Because when you think about it, I think we all want a constant in our lives. A something, or rather mostly a someone who is loyal, grounded and steady for us. Someone that can be with us in, in ways that no matter which way the winds are blowing, or no matter how we're tossed this way and that by the winds of life, this someone is there to help keep us on the mark. A constant. For Christians, for the early Christians who received this letter from the author of Hebrews, and for Christians to this very day, 
we have to confess that it is our belief that our supreme constant is Christ Jesus the Lord. The writer of Hebrews in our text today says it this way, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Perhaps this is a comforting phrase to you, or maybe it's not. I suppose it depends on where you're at and which way the winds are blowing in your life. I suppose it depends on your circumstances. I want you to imagine something for a moment. During the time of the writing of this letter by the author of Hebrews to the people of God, people were regularly tossed aside and thrown in prison for a particular confession. Christos kurios. Christ is Lord. They were put into jail, left alone to rot because of that confession and belief. One wonders, are they comforted by Jesus' sameness yesterday, today, and forever? I suppose you could think about it the same way in our current world. Maybe it's hard to hear for people whose homes are threatened by rising sea levels and winds. Maybe it's hard for people to hear that Jesus is constant. They're constant when they're being priced out of their neighborhoods and have nowhere else to turn. Maybe it's hard for those who have mental health issues without the means to get treatment for them. Maybe it's not easy for them to hear that statement. Nevertheless, we're reminded as Christians, whether we're on the mountaintop or in a valley, that Jesus Christ is our constant. We as Christian believers, we're allowed and can and ask to hold fast to Him, to hold fast to Christ's teachings. And if we do, if we hold on to Christ as our constant, we will find that we can have a, a constant moral vision. That is to say, we live in a world where sometimes we encounter things and we don't know how to respond. There are new and novel issues and crises facing us. There are realities that maybe we don't read about in Scripture, but if we're holding on to our constant, we will be given a constant moral vision for how to deal with them, and that is this. We will learn to radically identify with others. To radically identify with others to lean so deeply and compassionately into other people's lives that we identify. And if we do this, brothers and sisters, it will make us more human, and thus it will make us more divine. When the winds blow this way and that way, when you cannot tell which way is up and which way is down, when trauma is mounting up in your life, when social media has you in its grip and you're unaware that there are algorithms in place so that you can no longer be biased free and see the world with its nuances, you can only see it from your vantage point, wink, wink, that's happening, when the world, well, when the world is so messy to you, I encourage you to cling to your constant Christ. This past summer, we had an opportunity to swim at a friend's swimming pool. Marcella took off her floaties, and I stood in the middle of the pool, and she hollered to me. She said, 
Daddy, I'm going to swim to you. She's not a very adventurous kid. She's a little bit more reserved, but she hopped right in the water and she began to doggy paddle as best she could right in a direct line toward me. I was wondering if she could make it because I was kind of far away and then I noticed her, her doggy paddle straight line kind of bent into a large arc. And she went right to the wall and she clung to the side of the wall and she started going... <laughs> And I said, are you okay, honey? She goes, yes, I'm just catching my breath. I'm coming again. And she began to doggy paddle in my direction. And then I started noticing that straight line bend once more toward the wall. <laughs> and she got herself to that wall. <sighs> the presence of a wall, something to cling to, gave her courage. Of that, I'm certain. I, I think if we were in the middle of a lake or an ocean, without there being something obvious for her to hang on to, she would not have even tried. Cling to a Christ as your constant, because friends, this world doesn't have a whole lot, a, 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 a whole lot else to cling to, pardon me. The writer of the letter says this, when you do, you will be given a constant moral vision that includes radical hospitality. It tells you to so radically identify with others, to be so compassionate, sympathetic, that you will be so hospitable. You will be ready just in case there is ever an opportunity to entertain even an angel. Because you will always be ready to entertain with the most grace and dignity that you can afford. The writer of Hebrews says, when Christ is your constant, it gives you this idea to think about even people in prison. I don't often think about people in prison. I'll confess that to you. In fact, prison is one of the most terrifying places that I can imagine. I saw a few prison films when I was growing up, and it's sometimes in my nightmares, being in prison. Yet, the writer of this letter says, think about those people who are there and put yourself in their shoes. I assure you, the only way that you are going to have compassion for people that you're afraid of is to put yourself radically in their shoes. It goes further. It says this. Think about people who are being tortured. Now, I know you and I don't want to think about that. We want to distance ourselves from that. That happens somewhere that we cannot see for reasons that we just assume are good. Yet, the writer says, put yourself in the shoes of those who are being tortured. This is called radical empathy. And this is what following Jesus means. I want you to think about it. God came into this world to help us. We made a mess of ourselves, and here's how God saves us. God radically identifies with us, so much so that God takes on our flesh. God steps into our mess, and from the inside out transforms it. Radical identification, radical compassion, radical empathy is actually at the heart of God. And when we constantly look to Jesus, we get that is our constant moral imagination. Yet we have a temptation, and it's a sin. We tend to objectify each other. That is, we tend to treat each other as objects for our own pleasure or objects that stand in the way of what we want. We tend to treat each other as things and less like people to identify with. Now, friends, I submit to you that if you imagine 
that you are entertaining angels, like the text suggests. If you imagine that each person you encounter is of the angelic variety, or in the words of Mr. Rogers, if you remind yourself that each person that you look at has the divine spark, then it might change your mindset. It might help you have this radical sense of identification with the other. But the letter writer goes on, speaking of objectification, the writer says that physical intimacy matters in God's kingdom. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, it's plainly here in the text. The writer says to honor the marriage bed. Be faithful, don't run around, and here's what's more, never, ever, ever get involved inappropriately in somebody else's marriage. Be faithful, friends. And here's a word that I wish you'd take home and put in the bank. Husbands, do not objectify your wives. Husbands, your wife is someone that you should see yourself in. Do not objectify your spouse. Rather, identify with them in the most radical of ways. The writer goes on to some more controversial fare, but this is what happens when we constantly cling to Christ as our constant. We have this constant vision of morality that changes the way we live in the world, and it makes us strange. Here it is. It's controversial in our society. Do not love money. In fact, I would add to it if I were so bold, and I would say this. You cannot love money because you are devoting too much energy into loving people. And too often they are mutually exclusive. I know, this goes against the orthodoxy of our society, but money is not a good in and of itself. Money is only ever good when it is a tool used rightly. That is the Christian point of view. St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the most profound philosophers and theologians of the Western world, let alone Christianity, Thomas Aquinas, I would dare argue, has influenced all of us whether we know it or not. He was writing at the early medieval period, and he was asking questions that were fundamental to the church in those days. Here's the question he asked, is private property a moral good for the Christian believer? In our society, we take private property and we don't even think about it. Of course, of course it's okay for me to own property. But Christians have been since day one arguing, is it even okay for us to own private property? And here was what his answer was, and I stand with him. You may hold private property if and only if you use it for the good of other people. That's God's economy. It reminds us that all we have is actually for the goodness and blessing of others. It reminds us that what we have is not our own, but it belongs to God. Oh, the writer of Hebrews has a lot to say about our constant being Christ. And he says this, look at when in doubt, when life is tossing you this way and that, just, just remember leaders in your life who were clinging on to Christ, who remained close to Christ as constant for them. Look to their lives and imitate them when they're faithful. I was once working with a minister, and he called me, and he said, Jay, he used to call me Jay. Jay, I need you to come to this address, and so I went over there. I didn't know what I was getting into. This minister often worked with the man who was in and out of jail and um, in and out of his addiction to crack, and I guess the guy had fallen off the wagon again. He had a wife and several kids, and I pulled up and 
to this lovely neighborhood and to a lovely house that he had turned into a crack den. I didn't think crack dens were ever in nice areas of town. I'm very naive. I walked into the house and I was immediately intimidated because he was agitated. For the minister and the elders of the church went over there to move out his wife and his children. So I walk in, there were people passed out on the front room floor because they were high on crack. And he was angry as we were dismantling beds and loading them into a U-Haul. I was so afraid, and I don't mind admitting it to you, I was so intimidated, I went to the back room of the house where there was one of our elders on the floor dismantling a bed. I remember saying to him, it's kind of scary out there. As the man we were trying to help was yelling and raging. And he goes, well, I, I don't care. We're getting this family out of here. And then I heard the man I work for, the minister I work with, raise his voice. This guy is the sweetest, most humble. Uh, he was also a very non-confrontational person. He screamed at the top of his lungs to get outside to the man we were helping. And I was just betting that something bad was going to happen and terrified and calculated how I could get out of the driveway as fast as I could. But I was carrying things with that elder into that box truck, and I looked over when I got to the top of the ramp of the truck, and I saw the senior minister I work with, who doesn't like confrontation, stand his ground and tell that man straight to his face that he loved him, but he wasn't going to let him hurt his family, and that he's just going to have to deal with it. I confess I'm not good in situations like that by nature. I wouldn't know what to do, but now I have an example of a strong, courageous, gracious person who's willing to stand in the gap for a family in need. The writer of Hebrews says, if you, if you don't know what to do, look to some leaders who've done it well and then follow that example. My dear friends, the world is fraught. You know it and I know it. So we may ask questions if we're thoughtful enough, like, how am I supposed to behave when this, I've never, we've never seen any reality like this, or, or how am I to vote, how am I to talk, which way should I live, how do I spend, what's the appropriate way to consume? We ask these questions, and the truth is none of us have had contemporaneity with Jesus, which means this. None of us here has looked Jesus in the, in the eye and said, Master, teacher, Lord, um, here's a new problem over here. How does your teaching apply to it? Uh, Master, teacher, rabbi, um, walk me step by step to handle this situation. Somebody's trolling me on Facebook. We don't have that luxury. We live today and we look back in a text. So I have some, con some suggestions for us today. One is I'm asking you to cling to Christ as your constant, but I'm convinced that there are things that get in the way of that. And here's the first thing. We need to give up our addiction to ideology. I don't mean to be too technical, so let me break it down simply. Think of an ideology as a thought that you didn't argue for, and our world is filled with them. It sounds something like this. Oh, I don't like that. That's liberal. Oh, I don't like that. That's conservative just dismissing things left and right because we've got labels for them and someone told us what to think about them and we haven't really thought through it well enough to know where we really ought to land or think Jesus would have us land. 
I would like to ask my brothers and sisters in Christ today, why think that way? Why would you allow your mind to be a pawn? Don't you know that Jesus says, be as wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves? St. Paul tells us to take every thought captive to Christ, not to a party of political design and not to a marketer. Friends, we have to think through our ideology. Second, we need to work on overcoming our fear, and I know this is hard. So you're in church, and I'll try to speak the truth to you. None of us here will make it out of life alive. It's not a joke. It's just a reminder that we will all face it, and we're all afraid of it. The second thing that people are often afraid of is change, yet the only constant in nature is change. So we have to figure out a way to build up courage against those fears. Things will change. The world is changing, and it's going to, and we will not make it out of here alive. We need to overcome this as we cling to our constant who is Jesus. And third, third, it's would behoove us to delve deeply into the logic of our constant Christ the Lord, which means we need to study Jesus. And I don't simply mean being in your individual Bible study with coffee every morning. I think you need to get together with people. I actually think you need to go to church services, and I'm glad that my friends are streaming online, but the reality is we want you here. Being here, looking someone in the eye and passing the peace is a profound thing. Being told you're forgiven is a profound thing. Sitting under the authority of Scripture together is a profound thing. Everything we do here is meant to form, if you think about it, to form your mind and to form your heart. We need to get into the rhythm of our constant Christ Jesus. We need to take it seriously. And when we do, we'll find that we'll begin to imagine every encounter we have with every concrete, irreducible, wonderful, dignified, made in the image of God person, we will look at each one as though they could possibly be an angel. Because we won't know. We will be so convinced of the divine spark in their lives. We will lean into them with radical self-identification, and it will change the way we behave, make us more humble, more open, more giving. I'm not going to tell you any fanciful story that I've entertained an actual angel. But I will tell you, very recently, there was somebody who wanted to talk to me, and this wasn't a person that I would typically expect to hear a word from the Lord from. The fact that I'm telling you that should tell you that I, I, I'm flawed. Because if all of us have the image of God, then we can all speak something of God telling you that was arrogant. And this person stopped me and said they wanted to tell me something from God. Now, when I hear that, I also recoil. It's not that I don't think God can speak. It's just I don't trust people so much. Just telling you my problems out loud. Then that person grabbed me by the face and adjusted my face so my eyes were looking at theirs. And I got this chill from the bottom of my tail to the top of my head. So I looked in someone's eyes, because if you really look at someone in the eyes, it's hard to deny their humanity and their divine touch. And I just gave in and reminded myself, 
they have something from God to share, I will listen. I don't know which way the wind is blowing in your life right now. I don't know if the waters are rising. If they are not now, they will. Cling. Cling on the mountaintop and cling in the valley alike to your constant who is Christ. And when you do, you'll be able to walk in this world when you encounter new issues and you don't have a blueprint for them. You will be given the, the moral tools to radically identify and lean in with great compassion to see again the divine spark in everyone. For everyone is worth your time and everyone is worth your grace.